You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. If you come with us, we'd like to study through entire sections of Scripture here, so verse by verse, so it would be great if you have your Bible with you to follow along. So we are in Romans chapter 2 this morning. Let's begin by reading our text, which comes from Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, why do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded, or his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision uh, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one who is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we delve into this passage and and seek to understand it and how it speaks to our lives today, Lord, we ask that you would uh, illuminate our minds to understand this. Lord, uh, would you illuminate our hearts, that we would receive what your word is saying to us. Lord, that we would understand how this speaks to us, that we would apply these things to our lives. We wouldn't only be hearers of your word, but we'd be doers also, and that we would follow what your word says and how it shows us the good news of the gospel, and that we would respond to that gospel today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a few weeks ago, we started a new series in which we're studying through one of the greatest books in all of the Bible, Romans. And Romans lays out for us, like no other book in the Bible, what the gospel is and how the gospel works and how it applies to our lives. And what we've seen so far here in the beginning of the book, as he's explaining the gospel to us, he's given us the foundation for understanding and appreciating what Jesus did for us and the foundation for understanding what Jesus did for us, why it's important that he died on a cross, that he lived a a holy life, that he rose from the dead. The foundation of understanding why any of that matters is that we must understand who God is, that God is holy, that God is righteous, and that God is just. And because God is holy and righteous and just, that means that God must, he's in a way obligated to judge all evil and wrongdoing that happens here on earth. And at first we hear that and we think, well, that's good news because I want God to bring judgment on all the, all the bad stuff that happens, all the evil and the injustice, until we realize that that includes us. That all of us have sinned and fallen short. We've done things that we ought not to have done. And not only beyond that, not only is it our actions, but it's, it's worked its way into our inner being, the core of who we are. It's within us. And so if God judges the world, well, then that means that God will judge us too. But the good news is that God has made a way for us to be saved. 
A way for him to show us mercy without compromising his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. And he did that through Jesus. Jesus took the judgment for our sins upon himself in our place. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's why the gospel is our only hope. And that's why the gospel is exceedingly good news. But we won't understand, we won't grasp how good that news actually is until we understand this. The judgment of God that's coming on the earth that we all deserve because we've all fallen short. But here's the deal. Inevitably, our human nature, what do we do? We love to exempt ourselves from things. All rules, we love to exempt ourselves from rules. We'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, I get the rule, but I'm sure that in some way, I'm an exception to that rule. And people do this with this topic as well, right? Whenever we talk about judgment, God's judgment and sin and all that stuff, people, our natural tendency is to think, well, yeah, but... I've got extenuating circumstances, and I'm sure God understands. Like, I'm sure that applies to a lot of other people, but I don't really think this applies to me. And so, realizing that people are going to have that reaction, Paul, as he's writing this letter and explaining the gospel and why we need it so much, he anticipates that reaction of people trying to kind of exempt themselves from uh, saying that this applies to them. And so, in this section, which we're looking at, which starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, it's kind of a mini section within the book of Romans. In this section, Paul is going one by one and naming all the people who might try to exempt themselves from it and saying, no, 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 don't try and wiggle out of this. You can't. This does apply to you. And so he's making it clear that nobody can, can wiggle out of this. Nobody can weasel out of this. There's no way for you to say, that's for other people, but not for me. So for example, you know, one, one person might say, you know, you get the person who might say something like, hey, I'm glad that Christianity has helped you. And I know that there are some people out there who need religion in order to help them get their lives in order because, you know, it provides them with structure and uh, it gives them rules and it gives them a supportive community. And that's great for people who need that. But I don't need those things. I can do those things just fine on my own. And in chapter 1, Paul spoke to the person who would respond that way. And he says, hey, hey, listen, even if you don't acknowledge God, right? Like if you say you don't believe God or you're not sure about this God, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from God's judgment. It doesn't mean you'll escape his judgment. So for the, for the secular person living apart from God or not acknowledging God, he says, hey, this does still apply to you. Don't think that this doesn't. Or maybe you're, you're someone who lives a very moral life. And you would say, well, I can see why immoral people, you know, uh, people who are on drugs or people who are in jail or people who, you know, live in a trash can and kill the president, I can see why those people need the gospel. But I'm not like that, you know. I, immoral people might need to get right with God, but uh, I live a decent life. I don't hurt anybody. I mind my own business. So I kind of feel like I already am right with God. I don't need to do anything or go out of the way. And he says in chapter 2, which we looked at last week, uh, Paul speaks to the moral person and says, hey, hey. Don't think that you're going to escape the judgment of God either. Because God doesn't grade on a curve. We all wish that he did. Because we can all find somebody in like 0.2 seconds who's a little bit worse than us. And we're like, well, I'm sure God grades on a curve. And so if he does, then I should be good. Because there's this one guy over here or this girl over here. And I'm definitely better than her. But he says, no, God doesn't grade on a curve. So unless you're perfect, which nobody is then you desperately need Jesus. He is the only hope for you and what he's done for you. You cannot save yourself. Now, another person who might try to exempt themselves is a religious person. That's where he turns in today's text. A person who says, of course God will judge people, but not me because I'm not like other people. I'm not in the same boat as other people uh, because I believe in God. 
or I've been baptized, or I, I go to church, or I've gone to church my whole life, or I have wooden signs from Hobby Lobby that have Bible verses hanging in my house. I, I'm legit, right? Like, I'm good. So here at the end of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says, no, even you, Hobby Lobby sign person, even you, if you're religious, you got baptized, this applies to you too. Everybody needs the gospel. Nobody can save themselves through anything. And so we're going to talk about this. We've got three points today. The first of these points is why religion can be dangerous. And this comes straight from our text. Why religion can be dangerous. And here's, here's the reason. Religion can be dangerous because religion can give people a false sense of security. So religion can be dangerous because religion can give people a false sense of security. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah's day, here's what happened. He was prophesying at a time when the people of Israel had walked away from God. And because they had walked away from God, now they were suffering some pretty severe consequences as a result. And God sent Jeremiah to the people to tell them that because of what they had done, God was going to judge them. And he was going to judge them by allowing another nation to defeat them and conquer them and take them off into captivity. And what they needed to do was they needed to repent and turn back to God. Now you can imagine that wasn't a very popular message and people weren't very excited to hear it. In fact, they, they treated Jeremiah really poorly as a result of him giving them this message. He's like, hey man, I'm just the messenger. Right? But at the same time, there were other people who came around, other people who called themselves prophets, but they were false prophets, and they preached a much more popular message, a much more positive message, right? Like all positivity. And they told people, hey, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's such a bummer, such a downer, right? Talking about all his judgment stuff. Listen, nothing's going to happen. You guys are fine. God is not going to judge you because you're Jews. You're, you're sons and daughters of Abraham. So you have nothing to worry about. The problem was, that wasn't true. They did have something to worry about. And because it wasn't true, it wasn't helpful. Then Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah chapter 14. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to the people, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. See, the false prophets were giving people a false sense of security. That because they were Jews, because they kept the ceremonies and did these things, that they were fine. That they didn't need to worry about anything. They didn't need to worry about God's judgment. But that wasn't true. And that was very detrimental for the people to be given that false sense of security. So here at the end of chapter 2 in Romans, Paul is now speaking to religious people. See, Paul grew up in a religious family. He knows exactly how religious people think. The, the tendency of the religious people would be to say, I don't have anything to worry about. Sure, if God's judgment is coming, then let it come. I don't need to worry about that because I was baptized when I was a baby. Or because at one point in my life, I, I raised my hand at camp and received Jesus. Or because at one point in my life, I prayed the sinner's prayer and, and got baptized. And so I don't need to worry about anything. I'm good. I'm locked in. But Jesus would say, uh, or for example, Jewish people, their response would be, I don't need to worry because I, uh, I'm a descendant of Abraham. A Catholic person today might say, hey, I fast during Lent. I pray the rosary. I go to confession. And sure, there might be some things in my life that, that could be better, right? Like we could all afford to improve on some things. But I'm sure that God will overlook those things. He will give me a pass on those things because I've been baptized or, or I do these things or I, I go to this place. And Paul says, no. 
That's not true. Uh, you have a false sense of security. None of these things can save you. Even other religions, if you think about religions in general, they're, they're based on things like, you know, here are five steps or seven things that you need to do in order to get right with God. But the danger that's inherent to, to all of these systems is that they give people a false sense of security. They tell them, hey, if you do these things, then you'll be good. Then you'll be right with God. Now here in this passage that we look at, we, we see three things that don't make you right with God. Three things which on their own don't make you right with God. These are things that people sometimes trust in and, and get like a false sense of security. But on their own, they can't make you right with God. So let's look at these. In verse 17, he talks about belief in God's existence. So in verse 17, he says, You call yourself a Jew, and you boast in the fact that you believe in God. See, the Jewish people took great pride in the fact that they believed in the true God. Everybody else out there believed in, in false gods, but they believed in the true God. And there are a lot of people today who, who similarly would say something like, Look, I may not be a Christian, I'm not really following Jesus, but hey, I believe in God. Or like I'll talk to couples sometimes, you know, somebody tells me about their significant other and whether it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiance or spouse, and they'll be like, well, look, he or she is not a Christian, but they do believe in God. As if that's almost just as good, as if it's almost the same thing. But what Paul here is telling us is, hey, look, just believing that God exists doesn't do anything for you. Like that doesn't benefit you at all. It's a good starting point. It's absolutely a good starting point. But if you don't go beyond that, then it's not going to benefit you at all. So for example, in James chapter 2, the letter of James chapter 2 verse 19, he says, you believe that God exists? Well, well good for you. You know, I'm sure if he was today, he'd say, well, whoop-de-doo. Uh, you believe that God exists? Well, whoop-de-doo, good for you. You know, even the demons believe that. So at this point, you have the same theology as a demon. Congratulations. So demons believe that God exists, but how many demons are there going to be in heaven? Zero. Like zero demons in heaven, and yet they believe that God exists. Well, why? Why aren't they going to be in heaven? But see, because here's why. Because even though they believe that God exists, they know that God exists, they're not submitted to God. Rather, they are in rebellion against God. And that's true of a lot of people as well. Like, you may believe that God exists. You may know that God exists. But are you submitted to him or are you in rebellion to him? As we talked about a few weeks ago, biblical faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. Trusting God enough to do what he says. Now you might still struggle with doubts and questions like, like how does this work? Or why did God allow this to happen in my life or in somebody else's life? But biblical faith means that in spite of those remaining questions and things that you wrestle with, you believe something to the point that you act upon it. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then right after he says that, the author goes on to describe and explain what biblical faith is, what it looks like. And the way he does that is by giving us a series of stories that show us what biblical faith, the kind of faith that he's talking about. He says it's people like Noah, who God told him to build a boat in the desert in a, in a place where it had never rained. And he did it because God told him to. That's the kind of faith we're talking about, not just believing that God exists, but actually trusting God enough to do what he says. Or take Abraham, for example, who left his home because God told him to. And he was like, well, where are we going? And God says, just come with me and I'll tell you when we get there. And that's the kind of faith we're talking about. These are people who didn't only believe that God exists, but they entrusted their lives to him. They followed him. They, they did what he said. 
In the Gospel of John, this is the, the great theme, the central theme of the Gospel of John is this idea of believing in Jesus. So at one point in the Gospel of John, uh, some people asked Jesus, what must we do in order to do the works that God requires of us? And Jesus' response to them is this, here's what God requires of you. You ready? He says, believe in him whom he sent. That's what God wants you to do. What does God want me to do? Here's what he wants you to do. Believe in him whom he sent. You know, most famous verse in the Bible. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And at the end of the, the Gospel of John, he puts all his cards down on the table and he says, look, I'm just going to be straight up with you guys. I'm going to tell you what I'm going for with writing this book. He says, look, Jesus did a lot of other things which are not recorded in this book. But these things that are written here are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing you may have life in his name. So believing in Jesus is a pretty big deal. But the question is, well, what does that really mean? Like, how do I know if I'm doing it or not doing it? How do I know if I'm doing it right? Because obviously it's a big deal. I don't want to mess that one up. And so here's what it means. The Bible was written in Greek, right? And the New Testament was written in Greek. And the word for belief or faith, it's the same word, is the word Pisteo, pisteo, and pisteo means more than just believing that something happened or that something exists. Pisteo means this, it means to trust in something, to cling to it, to rely on it, and to adhere to it, and to commit yourself to it. That's the kind of faith and belief that we're talking about. In other words, it's possible to believe that there's a God. It's possible to believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross and resurrected on the third day. It's possible to believe that all those things are true and still not be a Christian. Let me give you an example. Think about those Roman guards uh, and all those people who saw Jesus crucified. They witnessed it with their own eyes. Did they believe that Jesus died on a cross? Of course they did. They were there. They saw it happen. Or, or the people, it says that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus after he resurrected. Did those people believe that Jesus had resurrected? Of course they did. It was, it was right there in front of them. But that alone did not make them Christians. Knowing those things, believing those things didn't make them Christians. No, to be a Christian means more than just acknowledging that something happened or that something exists. To be a Christian is, is about this. It's this pisteo, believing, this, this way of believing, which means trusting in, clinging to, relying on, committing to something. So a second thing which people tend to look to, which gives them a false sense of security, but which on its own cannot make you right with God, is a second one is knowing what the Bible says, right? So in verse 17, he says, you call yourself a Jew and you rely upon the law. Now let's just take a second here and define that. What does he mean when he says the law? Because this phrase, the law, appears a lot in the New Testament. So what does this mean? So the law refers to the 613 commandments which God gave the people of Israel and they are found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 613 laws and they're divided into three different categories. So there are moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. Moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. And it's really important to understand the distinction between those. Because how many of you have ever heard somebody say that, you know, Christians are, are hypocrites because what they do is they kind of pick and choose from the Old Testament commandments, like they, they keep some and they ignore others. And so, for example, a really common one that people sometimes bring up is they'll say, well, the law of Moses uh, has certain rules about sexuality, but also 
says that you should not wear clothing made of two different kind of fabrics, so no polycotton blends. You know, if any of you came in here with stretchy pants on today, like you are breaking the law of Moses. And it also forbids eating pork and eating shellfish, so no more ribs and no more lobster. And it also commands certain punishments for certain crimes. And so some people say, well, look at this. I mean, you're not being consistent. Uh, if you eat ribs and you... you wear polycotton blends and you uh, eat lobster, uh, but then you say that uh, other laws still apply. I mean, you're, you're being totally inconsistent. I just want to tell you, it's not that we're being inconsistent. We're actually being consistent with the divisions in the law, which are inherent to the law. So we're not being inconsistent at all. There's a difference between civil laws, which were given for that specific society, and ceremonial laws, which were all about cleanness and uncleanness, which was fulfilled once and for all in Jesus. And then we have the moral laws, like the Ten Commandments. And the moral laws apply to everybody at all times because they speak of God's character and God's moral state standard. And because God doesn't change, his moral standard doesn't change. So that's the law. But the Jews were very proud of the fact that, that God had given them his law. And they, they would study it, and they would memorize it, and it was common for children by the time they reached age 13, which was kind of coming of age. When they, by the time they reached age 13, it was common for kids to know the first five books of the Bible by heart. And you're like, that's easy. I can do that, right? Like Genesis, Exodus. No, not just the names of the books. They knew all the words of the books. And so they would study it hard. But he says in verse 18, he says, you know his will, you approve of what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And the Jewish person would nod their head and be like, yep, that's me. I'm instructed by the law. I approve of it. I nod my head. I give a thumbs up. I like it. Verse 19, and you're sure that you're a guide to the, the blind and you're a light to those who are in darkness. You're an instructor of the foolish. You have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And the person reading this, the religious person would say, exactly like I know what the Bible says and I'm happy to tell other people about it I'm just dropping Bible wisdom everywhere I go quoting Bible verses I'd love to quote the old King James because it sounds so awesome and I just I just give people I tell them hey man here's what the Bible says and I just drop Bible knowledge on them all the time and he's not his, yeah that's me and then he says in verse 21 he kind of flips it around and he says well you who teach others Tell me this, why don't you teach yourself? And be like, what? What do, you, what do you mean? He says, well, you preach about stealing, but you steal. You preach that people shouldn't commit adultery, but you commit adultery. And then he drops the hammer in verse 23. He says, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. What's he talking about? Now, most Bible scholars believe that Paul is probably not speaking of literally stealing and committing adultery because most religious people who would read this would just respond and say, well, I've never done that. I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, and I, I don't do all that stuff. But instead, what he's most likely talking about is the kind of adultery, the kind of idolatry, the kind of uh, covetousness that takes place in your heart and in your mind. And everyone is guilty of that. Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said before that you shall not commit murder. Right? Like, hey, I've never murdered anybody. But he says, but I tell you the truth. If you have been angry at someone in your heart, then you've committed the sin of murder in your heart and in your mind, even if you didn't do the physical act. If you've looked at another person with lust in your heart, then even though you haven't touched them physically, you've committed that sin of adultery in your heart and in your mind. And the point is this. It's not just what you do with your body. Right? God sees your heart. He sees your mind. And what that means is that there's not a single one of us who can pass that test. If it's not just what you do physically, but it's what goes on in your brain and in your heart, none of us can pass that test. And his whole point is here is to say this. 
Knowing what the Bible says and doing what the Bible says are are two different things. And if you're not doing what the Bible says, then knowing what it says isn't going to benefit you at all. All right, maybe you've met people before. I certainly have. They know a lot about the Bible, but it doesn't translate into anything personal in their lives. They could win a Bible trivia game, but they don't follow what the Bible says. Bible knowledge doesn't do anything for you on its own to make you right with God. For some people, in fact, the fact that they, they know a lot about the Bible just gives them a false sense of security. Now, I'm a, I'm a theology guy. I, I like theology. I like studying the Bible. But here's the fact that, that even me, right, like I think we need to recognize this. There are going to be some people in heaven who here on earth right now have some pretty messed up theology. Like they're pretty, they believe some really wacky stuff that I would look at and be like, that is wrong and the, your, your theology is, is terrible. But they're going to be in heaven in spite of that, in spite of their bad theology. And they'll get their theology straightened out when they get there. And I'm sure I'll get some of my theology straightened out when I get there too. At the same time, there are going to be some people in hell who have really, really great theology. They could teach Bible classes. They could, you know, parse all the stuff, you know, make it, make it good. They have tons of knowledge about the Bible. They haven't done anything with it. In fact, knowledge of God's word without obedience to God's word can actually be dangerous because the more you know, the more you'll be held accountable for, right? Like if you know God's word and you still choose not to follow it, that's worse than a person who acts in ignorance. But not only that, look what he says in verse 24. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now a few weeks ago in our last series, the Trouble Is series, we talked about how hypocrisy statistically is the number one reason that people give for why they do not wholeheartedly embrace Christianity or one of the things that keeps them away from Christianity. In other words, that's what he's saying here. Knowing the word of God and not obeying the word of God is a really big deal. And so simply knowing what the Bible says on its own doesn't make you right with God. If anything, it makes you more accountable to God. Now the third thing here that that gives some people a false sense of security, but which cannot make you right with God on its own, is religious rituals. So in verse 25, he mentions circumcision. Now if any of you don't know what circumcision is, just ask your parents, okay? Like circumcision is a very important, uh, it was a very important ceremonial ritual, uh, religious ritual for the Jews. And what it signified was that you were a descendant of Abraham and as a descendant of Abraham, therefore you were an heir to the promises which God made to Abraham. But in verse 25, it says this, if you don't do what the Bible says, then circumcision doesn't matter. Like it doesn't, it's meaningless. Now for us, I think we need to replace that with the idea of baptism. Right? So if you were baptized at some point in your life, whether as a baby or or when you were grown up, but you don't walk with God, then your baptism doesn't make you right with God. In several places in the Bible, God says things like this. He says, I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. Or he says, the sacrifice that I desire is the sacrifice of a contrite heart. In other words, God doesn't want people to just perform religious rituals unless those religious rituals represent a reality that exists in their life, unless there's something behind it. Otherwise, that ritual is just meaningless and empty. So God doesn't just want outward acts of circumcision. He says, I want circumcision of the heart. In other words, I don't just want the ritual. I want the inward reality which the ritual is supposed to represent. So think about it like this. Some people, when they get married nowadays, they don't, they don't get a ring that they can take on or off, but what they do is they get a tattooed ring. Like they get a ring tattooed on themselves because they would say, well, that's even more significant because you can never take it off. Now, if you really live that out, well, then that can be a very powerful symbol of your commitment to your spouse and your commitment to marriage. But what if you meet somebody at work or wherever you're at, you meet somebody and you think, wow, 
I really like this person, uh, they're, they're super cute, or I, I really like to be married to them, we have so many uh, common interests. And so you go out that day on your own and you get a wedding ring tattooed onto your finger. Does that make you married to that person? No, now you just have a very confusing and misleading tattoo. And that's what religious rituals are like. Like they're beautiful and they're significant uh, when they are a reflection of a reality which exists in a relationship with God, between you and God. But as verse 25 says, notice he doesn't say that circumcision is of no value. He doesn't say that. What he says is that it is of value, but only if it represents a reality in your life. By itself, on its own, it doesn't make you right with God with God. And that's one of the reasons why religion can be dangerous, because for some people it gives them a false sense of security. But now let's, let's look at the beginning of chapter 3, just the first couple of verses, and we'll see how religion can be helpful, but it has its limits. So religion can be helpful, but it has its limits. Religion can be helpful. Here's why. He says in verses 1 and 2, because religion can give you a great head start. You know that? It's true. Religion can give you a great head start. He says, what advantage do Jews have? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So, like, for example, in the book of Acts, you read about how the very first Christian missionaries went out and spread the gospel. Whenever they would come to a new city, the first place they would go would be to the Jewish people and to the Jewish synagogue, and they would tell the Jewish people about Jesus. And there were several reasons for that, but one of the main reasons was because the Jewish people already had all this background of knowledge. They understood the basic concepts like who God is and, and what it means, what is sin and judgment and, and righteousness and holiness. And they were already waiting for the Messiah. They were already prepped and prepared for thousands of years for Jesus to come. They had the Bible. They, they had all that background. And so it was a great head start for them. They had a great head start for embracing the salvation that God was bringing through Jesus. They had a great head start compared to other nations. And the same is true today. If you raise your kids in church... That has a ton of value. I want you to know that. That has a ton of value. Sending them to class and, and having them hear the Bible stories and, and get the gospel preached to them every week has a ton of value. So my background, for example, I grew up uh, going to Lutheran school. And so in Lutheran school, we had to learn Bible stuff and we had to go to church throughout the week as part of our school curriculum. And when I was in eighth grade, I went through confirmation. And those things by themselves did not make me a Christian. If you would have asked me at age 14, 15, am I a Christian? I would probably said no. But I knew a lot of stuff about Christianity. Now, was that then of no value? No, it was of value because here's why. I had learned so much about the Bible. I had learned doctrine and theology. And a few years later, when I did embrace the gospel for myself and put my faith and my trust in Jesus, I had a great head start. I knew a lot of stuff. I didn't have to start from zero. I had a ton of knowledge up here in my head that could now be applied in my life and could now reach my heart. And so religion can give you a great head start. It's a great foundation in understanding concepts about God. If you think about the Old Testament system, all of those things, they represented very important concepts, holiness and redemption and salvation. If you look at the Jewish sacrificial system, it communicated all of these things to the people. It was a great head start, but it was only a head start and nothing more. See, religion can be a great head start, but it's nothing more than a head start. In order for a person to be right with God, they need to move beyond religion and rituals and, and move beyond to something that Bible knowledge alone can't give you. 
in verses 3 through 5, Paul, now he says something which, which it seems really confusing if you just read it, but I think it actually is a very common question. So let me read it to you and I'll explain what he's saying. He says in verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does that or faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. What, what he's saying is this. God made some promises to the Jewish people, but clearly some of the Jewish people don't believe in God and don't follow God, so does that mean that God didn't keep his promise? And the answer is no. This is the very point that Paul is trying to make here. Religion is a great head start, but it can't take you all the way. It's nothing more than a head start. You might be in a believing family. You might be in a believing community like these Jewish people were. You might have been dedicated to the Lord as a child. You might have put your faith in all these things, but no one else can do it for you. You have to choose to put your faith in Jesus. You have to have a relationship with God on your own. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You have to do it. You have to step over that line for yourself and believe and follow Jesus. Now in verse 5, he addresses another question. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? And you're like, what did he just say? I'm not even sure. Let me explain it to you. This is like what I imagine, this is like the kind of argument that a teenager would come up with, like when they're trying to justify their, you know, they're trying to explain to their parents, right? right it's a person who says, well, if God's in control of everything and I just sinned, well, then didn't God make me sin? And therefore, how can God judge me for making me sin? Because he's sovereign. And he says, no, no, no. No, that's not how it works here. You are complicit for the things that you do. And another person might say, well, well, think about it this way then. If what I do is bad and that my badness makes God look all the more good in comparison, well, then in a way you could say that I'm bringing glory to God. So he should uh, say thank you to me and be happy that I did that sin because I just made him look good. And Paul says, are you kidding me? Knock it off. Like I said, this is the kind of arguments like the teenagers come up with who grow up with the Bible. These are the kind of things that they say. Well, you know, Mom and Dad, the reason I did that thing that, I, that you told me not to do was because I'm all about glorifying God. My sin makes God look awesome compared to me. And so, you know, me, I'm just all about glorifying God, and that's why I did it. And Paul says, don't be ridiculous. Like, that is just dumb. This is why God is judging people, because of stuff like this. He says in verse 8, your condemnation is just. Religion's a good head start, but it's all it is. It's just a head start. It can't save you. It can't make you right with God. You need something more. And that brings us to a question, which is actually not answered in our text. For the answer, we have to look a little bit forward. So I'm going to let, I'm just going to, I can't restrain myself. We got to look a little bit forward. And the question is this, who then can be saved? Right? Who then can be saved? Paul has shown us that religion can give you a great head start, but it's incapable of making you right with God. And the question is this, if, if you can't be right with God by being moral, and you can't be right with God by being religious, then who can be saved? A few years ago, I was teaching a class that we now call Foundations Classes here at church. We're teaching this class. Um, again, if you want to sign up for that class, I really encourage you to do that uh, out in the lobby. But we had this class. I was teaching it. And I had this young lady in class. And we were talking about what the Bible says about these things, about God and human nature and how all have fallen short and the wages of sin is death. And this, this girl, she looks at me and she's like, I could see the wheels turning, and she's processing it, and she asked me, well, so, so if you're saying that we can't be saved by being good, and we can't be saved by being religious, well then, how can anyone be saved? And I was like, I got like goosebumps all over, I just wanted to jump out of my chair and like, and like 
jump up and down and shout. And I was like, you get it. You finally get it. That's what I've been trying to explain to you, right? Like, now you're finally getting it. You're finally starting to understand. This is the exact point that all of this text is exactly leading you to ask. Well, then how can anybody be saved? It's only when you get to this place and ask that question. That's when you've really understood what he's saying. It's only when you ask that question, well, how can anybody be saved? That's when you're ready to receive the gospel. Who can be saved? If you can't earn it by being good enough, if you can't earn it through religious rituals, then how can anybody be saved? And the answer is given to us at the end of chapter 3, and I can't help myself. We're going to have to just look forward and see what it says. Look at what it says in verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've got that part. We understand that. But now here comes the good news. And they are justified by his grace as a gift grace. It's a gift. It's something you could never earn, something you don't deserve, but it's given to you as a gift that you simply receive. And he says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means to satisfy justice. God's justice, God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus. He took your place. He took the judgment that you deserve. God's wrath fell on him so that you could receive mercy and you could receive forgiveness and life. And how do you receive that? He says by faith, by trusting in it, clinging to it, adhering to it, relying on it. We've already seen how foolish and pointless it is for us to trust in our own uh, goodness or morality or even our own religious activities. We need something that we can really trust in, that will actually come through for us, that we can actually rely on and we have that in Jesus finally someone who can actually save us someone what he did something that we can really rely upon and, and cling to and when you do that when you stop trusting in yourself and you begin trusting in Jesus and what he did for you when you embrace the gospel that, that it's credited that Jesus's righteousness is credited to you and you receive it by faith just as your unrighteousness was credited to him on the cross that's the great exchange that's the only way that we can be saved. Beyond that, not only are we saved, but we become sons and daughters of God and people upon whom God looks and he says, you are my beloved child, my beloved son and daughter. And finally, in verse 26, he says, it was done to show the righteousness of God at the present time so that he might be the justifier. He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is completely just he can't just wipe our sins away. He can't just, in the sense of wiping them under the carpet or pretending that they never happened. So the only way for God to remain completely just and yet show us mercy is for him to pour out the wrath, the judgment, the punishment on himself. And that's exactly what he did. Now let me ask you this. Why would anyone ever do something like that? Like, have you ever heard of such a thing? We created this problem. We made our bed. Now we've got a lie in it. It's our fault. Why would he take the fall for us? And there's only one answer. And that's because he loves you. He loves you. Do you hear that today? He loves you. Do you see that? That's the point of everything we've been talking about so far. He loves you. If ever for a moment in your life you've doubted that God really loves you, whether you've wondered, is it really true? Does God actually care about me? Then don't miss what we're looking at here. That in the most ultimate way, in the way which answers the question once and forever, for all eternity, he proved his love for you on the cross. And if he loves you that much, that he would do that for you, then whatever else happens in your life that you may not understand, that might not make sense to you, you always come back to this. You always come back to the cross. Because if you do, then you'll be able to say, I may not understand what's happening to me right now, 
But this one thing I'm assured of, he loves me. And so I will trust in him, even in the dark moments that he's working all things together for my good and for his glory. So today, I invite you to embrace this gospel, this good news. For some of you, it might be the first time. For others of you, you might have done it many times. But I want to, embrace, I want to encourage you today to hear this truth and to believe it, to trust in it, to cling to it and rely upon it. This joyfully, joyfully joyful good news. It's God's gift to you. Receive it by faith today. Lord, we thank you for this message of good news. We thank you for this message that, Lord, you love us. And Lord, this morning, I pray that we would say, yes, Lord, we receive what you've done for us. We look to it and we see in it our only hope. And Lord, we see in it just the greatest expression of your love. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in Christ. May we receive it today. And may we walk in the light of these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 